Hello, everybody. It is good to be with you today. Good to see some familiar faces. Good to meet some new people. I always like the energy that's on a college campus, which is not necessarily more energy than I'm used to, but it's certainly a more contained and organized energy that I like. Um, at our house, we have four kids and um, one six-month-old pandemic puppy. So we have uh, a freshman in high school and a fifth grader and a fourth grader and a four-year-old. Obviously, we made some decisions there, right, with that breakdown of kids and where they land. And um, the thing that we appreciate about our kids is they get along really well. They've done a good job over the last year spending time with each other. Um, but a lot of interesting things happen, right, when you have kids that are that broad in their age range, especially when you have the preschooler and the teenager together. There are some things about them that are the same, but there are some things that are different. Like with one of those kids, I'm always having to, to figure out how to protect my technology from her, right? She's always trying to hijack it. The other one, the little guy, like we're always trying to keep pants on him. And different challenges for different kids, you really learn how to diversify some things. The hardest um, parenting thing right now is the socialization of our four-year-old. Like, he doesn't get out a ton, um, so a lot of what he picks up are things from his older siblings. He picks up things from whatever preteen Disney show his older siblings are enjoying watching at the moment. He picks up a lot of um, lines from songs in Hamilton, and he picks up a lot of the trash talking that his older brother does when he plays Roblox with his friends um, on the computer. And so he takes all these things in, but he doesn't necessarily know the appropriate times then to unleash them on an unwitting public. Like a couple weeks ago, uh, we were working in, in the yard. I had him out with me and we were building some fence and he's like riding his Strider bike out in front and across the street, some of our neighbors start walking down the street and he sees them and he goes, hey, and they look over and they say, hey, buddy. And he says, are you a hobo? And I'm like, yeah, see, bud, that's not the appropriate time for that. Like the trash talk time is when you're with your brother and his friends and you're talking on the Alexa. When we meet people that we don't know, then we just try to say like kind and gentle and loving things to them. The other challenging part um, about having kids in that age range is having family discussions about things because for the, the little guy, like all he is going to take in is whatever the top line point is, the most basic point that you're trying to make. But he has really like deep and interesting questions. The other night, my wife was reading a Bible story to him and the Bible story mentioned that God created everything out of nothing. And as you can imagine, like for a little kid that doesn't really have a great concept of like space and time yet and really how big things are and what it means to like take something out of nothing, he had a lot of questions for her. But he's really only going to be able to like take in and grasp one thing, like one big idea. And you have to like present this big theological idea in words that he can understand. And so as a parent, even as a parent that you know, reads the Bible and prays and studies these things and, and thinks that we have a good understanding of what's going on, we really have to think through on the spur of the moment, okay, how can I explain this in the most simple, basic way possible? And it may not be a complete explanation, but it needs to be an explanation that doesn't lead him down the wrong road. 
You don't want to say, oh, well, you know, like God's magic or whatever, or God's like Harry Potter, because that will put an idea in his head that then we don't want to, to develop or to percolate or for him to expand on. And so you think about things just basically like saying, you know what, God is all-powerful, and God created these things so that we could understand how amazing he is, right? And the four-year-old can understand that. Now, as people get older, then you start going into more detail about these things. And it can get really, really complicated to the point where you're at, right? You guys go into your BCD classes, um, and you go and, and you read on a specific subject for a while, and the professor lectures on a specific topic for a while. And then you sit down, and, and you have to take a test, but the test doesn't just cover like a one-sentence explanation of these theological topics. Like you sit down, you look at the test, and the professor wants you to uh, explain three fundamental truths at the exact same time. And you sit there, and you are just feeling absolutely helpless because you're wondering, is this professor ever, ever, ever going to be satisfied? And like maybe you haven't had to have that very like exposed, nervous experience yet, but if you stick around this place long enough, you will. Just you wait. Just you wait, and you will understand how difficult it is to get into the nuances of some of the stuff that goes on in the Bible. Today, we've got... Um, uh, uh, topic and a subject and a scene that is pretty short. However, it shows up in the Bible a number of different times, and it's an incredibly important scene. And it's this scene where Jesus gets baptized. I chose uh, for us to look at the version of this in Matthew chapter 3 today, beginning in verse 13. It says that then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for, this, uh, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, John, consented. And when Jesus was baptized immediately, he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened up to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Not a ton of words there, but like a whole bunch of content for us to catch. And so the basic gist of this is I've read this and, and I've studied it. I've talked with people about it. Like, like the top line thing, if I were just going to give it one sentence to the question, why did Jesus get baptized? The answer that I would give people is Jesus got baptized because Jesus stands with us. Jesus got baptized because Jesus stands with us. Now, those of us who are a little bit older, we have some follow-up questions for that, right? Like, well, what, what does that mean? And what's going on here? Who are all of these people? And like, did everybody get to see what happened and hear what happened when God spoke to Jesus from the clouds and, and the dove came down? Or was that something that, that Jesus just saw and heard? The tricky thing about baptism is that even in Christianity, there are a lot of different views, a lot of different ideas about baptism. What just about all Christians agree about is baptism is really, 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 really important. It's one of our foundational practices that we do as people who follow Christ. 
Now, beyond that, then, uh, there's a lot of discussion in different traditions about how you're baptized, why you're baptized, when you're baptized, what is said when you are baptized, whether or not that's a choice you make, whether or not that's a choice your parents make for you. And I'm not necessarily here to litigate all of that today. Because while our family has made decisions on that based on our faith tradition, um, I'm not going to say that like our answers are the only right answers. It's this uh, concept that I kind of call the sphere of orthodoxy. And if you think about anything that's round, like a ball or a moon or something like that, and then you think of all of the theological ideas that there are about that, and you put them in there, and some of those ideas are drawn towards some poles, and some are drawn toward the other, some are in the middle, some are on the side. With baptism, I think there are a handful, a number, maybe even a dozen different ideas that reside in that sphere of orthodoxy that people who read scripture and they pray and they listen to the Holy Spirit and are trying to understand the best they can, like that's what they believe and that's the route they go. And and there's a, a healthy belief in there, right? The thing isn't necessarily black and white that we can understand right now. Now, certainly there are some ideas that people talk about, even people who read their Bibles, even people who call themselves Christians that are outside of that sphere. You're like, "Mm, that is not healthy, not helpful. And in fact, might be hurting other people. But with baptism, I like to, to think about a lot of those ideas of us being kind of okay with each other as we practice baptism and as we talk about it. And I think that's important because we see Jesus getting baptized um, in a way and in a manner that is a mix of a lot of our different understandings that we have now and practices of baptism. So my top line thing is that like, yes, uh, baptism, Jesus' baptism is something that shows us that Jesus stands with us. But then what does that standing with us actually look like if we look at the meaning behind what he was doing? And the first thing that stands out to me is that Jesus' baptism is like a signpost. Jesus is saying something. Jesus is making a declaration of intent. Matthew talks about Jesus traveling from Galilee to the Jordan River. That's like a 70-mile journey. So it's not something that Jesus is doing on accident. Jesus is somewhere, and Jesus purposefully takes a lot of time and a lot of energy to get somewhere Else, He is going somewhere for a reason because you don't just start like wandering and end up 70 miles away and be like, oh, people are getting baptized. I'm going to have this guy baptize me. And the thing about the, this guy that's baptizing Jesus is um, Jesus knows this guy and history knows both Jesus and John. The people at the time maybe like aren't putting all the pieces together if you were like standing there watching this scene break out and you didn't have all the context. But Jesus and John, they are cousins, right? And not play cousins, they're like they're actually blood cousins. And both of their mothers had experiences um, where God came and talked to them, like the spirit came and talked to them and, and, and did some things with their families. And in addition to that, Both Jesus and John are prophesied about in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament. And so you look in the Old Testament, you see texts talking about a voice crying out in the wilderness. That's talking about John the Baptist. And you see texts, uh, prophecies that are talking about someone who's coming um, to be a redeemer, to be a savior. Those are talking about Jesus. So there's this coming together 
of these two people who are related, who have a shared history, who have this like overlapping kind of supernatural history and who have an actual history history and that they are the fulfillment of prophecies. And for all of that to to come together in this moment, like that is purposeful. That says something that tells us to pay attention. And when we have the opportunity to then look into the future and see what happens with Jesus after this, we know that this is a, is a <laughs> the phrase that just came into my head was watershed moment, which is a horrible pun. But this is like this watershed moment, this uh, uh, thing with like bright blinking neon lights that says something big is going on here. And in the little text that we read, we see this supernatural thing happening of, of God talking and multiple senses being involved. After this, Jesus goes into the wilderness where Jesus is um, tempted by Satan, by the adversary for 40 days and 40 nights. And then Jesus goes and calls the disciples. And so here's Jesus making this declaration of intent as Jesus gets ready to stand with us. Jesus doesn't like come as a bystander to the things that are going on around him. Jesus dives all the way in. He gets into relationships with imperfect people. He does things that that push him physically. He does things where, where he's pushed emotionally. He does things that for him even raise some questions. And we see a signpost of all of that that is about to come here as Jesus is getting baptized. Secondly, the thing that really um, kind of gets us, right? And that we'll never fully know the answer to until we get to ask God is why would Jesus get baptized if baptism is one of those things that we do for the repentance of sins? In some of the other texts, gospel texts that talk about this scene, it says specifically that John the Baptist was out in the gospel preaching a message of the repentance of sin. So if on the one hand, we're gonna hold that Jesus came to earth, Jesus did not sin, and that's pretty important for some of the implications in terms of our forgiveness. Why would Jesus then go out into the wilderness and get baptized for a person that is preaching the redemption of sin and the forgiveness of sin? And I think the easiest way for us to explain it is that Jesus is standing with us. We, in our kind of church and relationships and context, we have a very individual understanding of sin and particularly like of of sins, of when we do wrong things. In Jesus' time, in the time before Jesus, there was, in addition to that, a much more like community understanding of holiness and of righteousness, of right living and of wrong living. You look in the Old Testament and you do see people who sin, right? And God calls them out for those sins and there are consequences for those sins. Sometimes they are punished. But there are also times where God is talking about like the whole, the corpus, the people of Israel and talking about whether or not they are worshiping, whether or not they are living righteously, whether or not they as a group need to repent or need forgiveness. And so I kind of think that one of the things that Jesus is doing is saying, yeah, like I am here with you in this idea that we as as a people have some stuff that we need to take care of. There's uh, an author. His name is Michael Twitty. And interesting thing about Michael Twitty, he is black and he is Jewish. He is also a food historian. The thing that um, he likes to do, he has uh, this deal that he calls the Southern Discomfort Tour, where he goes to different places in the South, oftentimes plantations, 
and he dresses in clothing that enslaved people would have worn, and he cooks meals the way that enslaved people would have cooked meals. So he gets about like 4.30 in the morning, and he goes and he gathers wood, and he chops it, and he starts a fire. And then he cooks these multi-course meals over a fire, and it's something that like takes him all day to do, and he gets smoke in his eyes, and he gets smoke all over his clothes, and he has to make everything from scratch, cut up every single thing, try to procure um, uh, foods that are difficult nowadays to procure. And then he uses that as conversation starters with people who sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally stumble upon him while he is doing this stuff. In his book, The Cooking Gene, he talks about a situation that he was in once where there were kind of two groups of people with him as he was sort of doing his thing and he was conversing with. There was a group of Southern white people from the United States and there was a a group of German people. And one of the people who was in the group of Germans um, just asked him like, what does it feel like to wear these clothes and embody this reality in this space? And Michael Twitty said, turned it back on him. And he said, this German guy, uh, well, what does it feel like to embody your experience in light of the Shoah? And Shoah is the Hebrew word for Holocaust. And at this point, they start to have a discussion and the German guy says, man, you know what, it is painful and that was wrong, and we never should have like, done that, and we are still working to make it right. And Michael Twitty talks about how the American people that were in his presence right then got real uncomfortable, and they got real uncomfortable, and they just like started leaving the room. like They couldn't be there for that discussion. There are scholars um, that talk about this German concept that I tried to memorize, but I'm not good at memorizing seven-syllable German words. So I'm going to read it off of this note card that, are, that I made. Um, there's this concept that started in the 1990s called Vergagen Hetz... Oh, shoot, I messed it up already. <laughs> Vergagen Hetz Bewitzkung. All right, and I'm sorry that I butchered it, uh, but you can Google it and find it online and see how it's spelled, this seven-syllable word. And it is this idea that kind of refers to two different things in English. One is coping with the past, and the other is working off the past. Because in the 1990s, there were not everybody wanted to do this, but there were enough people in Germany who wanted to do this, that it became a cultural reality, right? That they would really deal with their role in their history in the Holocaust. And I don't think that they would necessarily use this word because it wasn't a religious experience for everybody, but this idea that there would be a repentance, that they would teach and talk about and remember the Holocaust in a certain way so that that never happened again. So that people who came after them would understand their history, would have um, kind of a feeling of, of guilt and not a guilt trip, but a feeling of guilt like, man, our people did this even if I didn't do it. And that wasn't right. And that was going to be something that they as a country were going to do. And there are scholars who say like, you know, the United States, like we never did that. You have people that go get married on plantations. Uh, you have people that probably showed up and, and saw this uh, dude who was cooking, and they probably just like wanted to take pictures of him, like he was part of slavery land at Epcot Center or something, and like get the poster and, and go home. And he would ask people to sit in the discomfort, right, of saying, we have something that we need to take care of, even if you didn't live in the 1800s. We have something that is unresolved and we need to do this and sit in this together. 
I think what Jesus was saying was, I'm going to stand with you. I am going to sit in this thing with you. This thing that you are going to do, which is repentance from sins, but also this thing that we are going to do, which is the pursuit of God's righteousness and the pursuit of the holiness of God. And when we zoom into the future, we know that God um, sees us differently when God sees the righteousness of Jesus in us. That only happens because Jesus said, I'm going to stand with you. I'm going to stand with you. I'm going to sit with you in this thing that I didn't contribute to, but that I want to see resolved. The third thing that I think is happening here um, is I think (laughs) Jesus gets baptized for the encouragement. And some people might say, like, Jesus needed the encouragement. Some people might not quite be comfortable with that phrasing, but maybe, like, the encouragement was really helpful to Jesus. Um, Because Jesus didn't come to view all of this as a spectator. Jesus didn't come to just like dip in and like holler some uh, instructions like a coach, but like not have to do the drills with you, right? Jesus actually came in and got in the mess. And it was messy and it was, it was painful and it was hard. And you see that there are times throughout Jesus' life that Jesus is having to withdraw away to pray. I think probably to recalibrate um, perspective and to get the strength of God. And you have a very vivid picture of what that looks like here. And I think that the words of God are important in this text because that voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And if you think about all that Jesus had to go through, like people who he had invited into his inner circle betraying him, people not understanding him, people hating on him, people trying to trap him in things, people spreading lies about him, the physical toll of what it would mean to to be tortured and to die. I think that there is a point in which most of us, probably all of us would say, man, God does not love me or God is not good because a good and loving God would not allow this to happen. And I think that it was really important that God set out from the start at at this watershed moment that God would say, this is my beloved son and I am pleased with what he is doing, right? I am pleased with his attitude. I am pleased with his work because that takes this perspective of God doesn't love me or God is not good and instead grounds Jesus in, God has the power to redeem all things. God has the power to redeem all things. So we don't get this like physical or spiritual escapism just because we're doing the things that God calls us to do, just because we're following in the ways of Jesus. In fact, scripture is pretty clear that when we choose to do that, when we choose to go down that road, that means embracing hard things. Some of those hard things are getting in touch with our own brokenness and our own hurts. Some of those things are subjecting ourselves um, to, to difficulty or pain that others impose on us, sometimes fairly, sometimes unfairly. It means going into spaces that are uncomfortable for us and saying, I am going to engage something in something with you. It means that that, that you're serving other people. It is a lifetime that does have joy and fulfillment in it, but it's also a lifetime where I think if we're really following Jesus, that there are going to be difficulties. 
And so remembering that moment where the heavens open up and, and, and God's spirit descends on Jesus and God says, this is my son and I love him and I'm pleased with him, helps ground Jesus and can later help ground us in this idea that God has the power to redeem all things. You know, we're always looking for, um, looking for and needing and wanting. Just have a, a deep call in the core of who we are of someone to always be there for us, right? And there are times where we feel abandoned, and rightfully so. Uh, there are times where we feel like our strength isn't enough for what we're going to have to deal with. And we're like, man, if I, just, if I just had someone that I could lean on and support. In popular culture, there's a saying for this. It started in um, biker culture, like people who ride motorcycles with like the leather jackets and the big beards, but it's since been adopted by hip-hop culture and now has broader acclaim uh, across different groups. But it's like that ride-or-die attitude, right? I need a ride-or-die person with me. And with Jesus, not only do you have like a ride-or-die person, you have a ride-or-die, ride-and-die, and come back to life person, right? That person who redeemed the whole thing, who was willing to go to the end, who is willing to sit with you, who is willing to stand with you. And then in the end was able to say, I got this with you and I'm going to go farther and I'm going to conquer it all. And man, I just got to think that that is something that we all need to hear right now because of how much hard we have all had to endure. One thing that always struck me on college campuses was how much people were hurting, right? And so like you would sit in things like RA interviews and um, you ask people to, to tell their testimonies and people would just like be so honest and so open and you would hear these stories of like people who had been hurt or people who had been assaulted um, and they would really just like open up their hearts and open up how God had been there with them through that. And I just realized like whatever you think you see on a college campus, the hurt goes so much deeper. And then over this past year, we've had compounded on that, the fact that we've had to grieve not being able to do a lot of things that we wanted to do. Some of you probably had to grieve not being able to have a high school graduation last year. Some people had to grieve not being able to um, be a part of a sports team that was really good and had a chance to finish really strong and do some awesome things. Some people have had to grieve. One of the things I've had to grieve, I have not seen my family on the West Coast in person in like a year and a half. Like that has been hard and like Zoom's cool, but it's difficult. Um, all of us like have probably had to grieve even in just like the last couple of weeks, seeing people who we know and love just like suffer, right? Not have heat, not have food, not being able to like get anywhere or, or get the help that they need. All of that stuff, it just piles and it piles and it piles and it piles and it piles. And it would be easy to be like, where is God in all this? Where is Christ in all this crisis? And the answer is, Jesus is right here. Not watching, not as a passerby. Jesus declared his intent. And Jesus is sitting right here in all of this, ugh, with us. And Jesus uh, isn't sitting there saying, ah, I just can't help you. Jesus is saying, I'm here, and there's a brokenness, and this is not necessarily uh, the plan of God, but God has the power to redeem this. God has the power to redeem this. And I can't tell you exactly all of the ways in any of those situations that I mentioned or your particular situation, exactly how God has, is going to redeem that situation. But I do know that it's possible. I do know that, that, that God really wants to do that. 
And one of the reasons that I know that is because in my Bible, when I open it up, I see one of the first things that it talks about Jesus doing of his own volition. He's walking 70 miles out into the wilderness, embracing his role and his calling as a fulfillment of prophecy that had been sown long ago of saying, I'm going to stick with you all through stuff that is not of my doing, and I'm going to stick with you forever. And of God saying, this is what pleases me. Here is my spirit. I give you the strength to do it. That's where Christ is in all of this crisis, right here with us, with the power to redeem all things. God, it's hard to be in the dark It's hard to sit in discomfort. Quite frankly, we're all tired of it. We don't want to do it anymore. But uh, we know that there's still a lot of stuff going on that is outside of our control. There's still a lot of stuff going on. We know that that you see every bit of it. There's nothing that is beyond your vision or your purview or your power. And so we pray for a couple of things today, God. We pray for uh, your comfort and your assurance and that faith that comes from not rejecting you when things are difficult, but that faith that, that comes from relying on you. And even if it's just like a little thing today, God, we ask just for that, that little nugget of hope and of light that reminds us that we worship a suffering servant, that we worship a Jesus um, who doesn't ask us to do anything that Jesus was not willing to do, that Jesus does not ask us to do anything that Jesus did not experience, and that Jesus experienced these things with us right now. So give us that hope. Give us that light. Help us to be hope and light to other people. Give us eyes that are open and trying to figure out how you're redeeming this thing and give us feet and hands that are obedient when you call us to be part of that redemption. We love you. Build our hope and trust in you today. In Jesus' name, amen.